This is the Mark Stucheski Podcast. Fleet Mall is an author, meditation teacher, social entrepreneur, business consultant, executive coach, and trainer. His latest book, which I am absolutely fascinated by, Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Living Your Highest Purpose, and Become an Unstoppable Force for Good. Fleet, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here, Mark. I absolutely love the title of your book. I, I think here in 2021, September 2021, there is so much blaming going on. It's not my fault. It's it's the government's fault. It's my neighbor's fault. It's my employer's fault. And it's like, can we stop with the blame game? So I just want to give you credit right now for a tremendous title book. We haven't even talked about the book, but the title, I think if people just read the title, I think that they would get a a jolt. Thank you very much. Hopefully so. <laughs> so what led you to re- write that book? Be- were you getting frustrated with everything going on in our world today? Well, actually, the book was a long time coming. Um, I kind of planned to have it out about 10 years earlier than oh. I managed to get it out. But it's really uh, kind of the result of my life work. And uh, I discovered that my own path to freedom and transformation came through embracing this level of radical responsibility or radical ownership that is very understandable. I mean, it's a human condition for us all to want to defect blame. You know, we've kind of all been enculturated to believe that when something goes down, somebody's going to take the blame, right? And we've all been blamed enough, experienced enough shame in our lives, so we don't want any more of that. So, And I feel if I can't find somebody else to blame, I'm going to have to blame myself. So naturally, I don't want to do that. So we just almost instinctually deflect blame, right? Mm. It's kind of the human condition. We need to have a lot of compassion with ourselves about that. But nonetheless, it is completely ineffective. In doing so, we completely disempower ourselves. Because when we're upset about things and we convince ourselves or assume or believe that the causation for our feelings lies with some situation or someone or several people outside of ourselves, then we just put them in charge of our internal state uh, and we're giving away our power. And really the only place where we have any real influence is with ourselves, right? I mean, we can sometimes influence others, but we certainly can't control others. I mean, we all try, right? We try to control our spouses, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, family members, coworkers, uh, but it's really a futile effort. And People are uncontrollable. We know that beyond a shadow of a doubt because we all know we're uncontrollable. No matter what somebody does to try to, you know, uh, control us or dominate, we're going to find our way. You know, human beings are endlessly creative in getting their own needs met. So it's kind of a, a futile waste of effort. And, you know, it's normal. I mean, when something happens to us, especially, and, and I want to be really clear here, horrendous things happen to human beings. And, and we're talking about adults here with this conversation about radical responsibility. And children deserve a need to be protected. But horrible things happen to adults. And and when people are truly victimized, they may need a lot of support. They may need a lot of validation. And, and it's certainly, I don't feel it's for me or anyone else really to go to someone and say, you need to get off that now and move forward. Absolutely not. But we all know if somebody, even when something terrible happens to them, if they really stay stuck in that and get stuck in that victim mindset, however understandable it may be, at the very least, it's going to be very limiting for their life going forward. So we would hope for everyone that at some point we can find so okay, this is in my life now. Maybe it's completely unjust. Maybe it shouldn't have happened to anyone, but here it is. And the most salient question is, what am I going to do with it? What's the most creative way I can respond to this situation 
to move forward in my life. And that may include seeking support and seeking justice. But of course, we all go to the blame game all the time, even when we haven't been seriously victimized. And it's just become endemic in our culture. And again, I don't think that's something we need to beat ourselves up about. You know, the human condition is that job one for any species is survival, right? So we're, we're kind of set up biologically to take a fear and survival approach to life. However, we are conscious beings and we can do otherwise, but it takes a proactive intention to not just live in that space of defensiveness and reactivity and survival and then and using blame and self-justification really as a defense mechanism. But we can rise above that. And that's where all the joy and the good stuff in life is when we embrace this level of sort of radical ownership. I generally talk about radical responsibility as voluntarily embracing this kind of radical ownership, radical responsibility for each and every circumstance I face in life, including the ones I can see I had something to do with, but also including the ones that seem like they just fall out of the sky and land on my head, right? And why? It has absolutely nothing to do with self-blame, and that's really critical here, the distinction between ownership and blame. Radical responsibility is certainly not about blaming others, but it's not even one iota about blaming ourselves, and certainly not about blaming victims. It's simply putting my energy where I have any real self-agency and real influence. And that's with my own choices, my own behaviors, and finding the most creative way forward in my life. So that's what it's really all about. And and this philosophy helped me come out of, uh, you know, being deep into the criminal justice system with a very, very long prison sentence for drug trafficking and finding my way through that, adding a lot of value while I was there, creating several national organizations from inside prison, and then for the last 20 years, 22 years now, having a, a really incredible life, traveling the world and and uh, bringing transformational teachings to people in all kinds of sectors of society. And that really came about because I, I didn't give in to that victim mindset, which you're really set up to do when you find yourself in the criminal justice system and in prison. So it has served me well. And, uh, and I think if you really look at, if you look at really successful people in their life, they're embracing it to one degree or another, at least in one part of their life. I mean, sometimes we're radically responsible in one part of our life and radically irresponsible in another part of our mm-hmm. life, right? But nonetheless, when you see people who are successful and really adding value, they're embracing this to some degree. Let me ask you a question because I we all heard of Gary Vaynerchuk, the super entrepreneur, owns many companies, came over from Belarus, Russia. He made a statement a couple of years ago, and he said, as a leader, as the owner, as the CEO of VaynerMedia, VaynerX, VaynerSports, he goes, everything's my fault. He goes, once you accept that it's your fault, it, it, you have so much freedom because he said, even if a subordinate of a subordinate of a subordinate does something wrong, well, I hired their boss and their boss and their boss. And he goes, for me, it's a lot better to say everything in the business that goes wrong is my fault. Everything goes right. I share the credit. Do you agree with that? Well, uh, yes, but I wouldn't use the word fault. Okay. I think the word fault is somewhat loaded to associated with blame and self-blame. And, you know, sadly, I think our culture is really riddled with not only blame, but also shame. And again, this is part of the human condition. You know, when we're born, we're born in an incredibly vulnerable circumstance as infants, right? We're still in a symbiotic state with the mother or the surrogate parent. And we're being ideally 
showered with love and affection. It feels like we're the center of the universe. Actually, our mother, surrogate parents, bloodstream, cerebrospinal fluid is full of oxytocin, among other things. And that's kind of the bonding hormone. So, you know, they're naturally, that's what creates the bonding and keeps the whole thing going with, you know, the way human beings develop. However, at some point it starts to wear off. And there I am thinking I'm the center of the universe and, you know, maybe (laughs) almost like the son or daughter of God, because the surrogate parent mother, that's, you know, the source of life for me. And so, and then suddenly one day I noticed, you know, maybe uh, mom or dad, they're kind of not even paying attention to me, or maybe they look somewhat irritated or distracted, right? And the whole game of the human neurosis begins, right? And now I got to start adapting to get their attention. You know, don't, don't leave me, love me, don't leave me. Or sometimes, you know, love me, don't hit me, right? And we start adapting ourselves and building our self-structures out of that. And unfortunately, you know, shame is the emotion that arises when, uh, when we feel rejected, when love is withdrawn, when we're being kicked out of the tribe, out of the family, we're, we're unworthy, right? And that's the emotion of shame. Well, one of the problems is, or I don't know, it's part of the human condition, but shame is a really powerful identifier. So if we get a lot of experiences, we all get some, but if we get a lot of experiences of shame in our childhood, that becomes part of our personality structure, the way we build our self-structure. And then we go looking for that in life because when we get that hit of shame, it's like, I'm here, it's home. It's like, a you know, because the antithesis, the, the alternate, um, the alternative to building some kind of self-structure when we're, you know, in the first months of life, first years of life, it's just black hole of emptiness, the actual groundlessness and impermanence of reality. And we're not set up to hold that psychologically as children, much that it's very difficult as adults. A lot of spiritual traditions about moving into that territory, right? But it's, it's very challenging. So we build that self-structure and it's, it's even though, even those of us who have the most high functioning self-structures is still essentially fear-based, but where there's a lot of shame there, we get we get that hit of shame. It's like I'm home. It's so familiar. It's very it's it's toxic, but it's also very, you know, it's a strong self identifier. So we know that many people seek shame, and you know really? some of the some of the acting well some of the acting out behaviors that we find most problematic. You know, especially um, you know uh, sexual offenders, but also other people acting out of addictions and various things. You know, they're actually acting out and seeking that shame. And the problem is. We give it to them, right? Because of our fear around a lot of behaviors that we find very threatening in society. We respond to that with a lot of shaming. We're meeting what they're looking for and it keeps that cycle going, right? So how do we break the cycle? Because I'm sure that people are listening to you right now and they're like, okay, I I think I'm trapped in that cycle. I I, I feel a sense that you describe me 100%. So what is something, because I like to get really practical on the podcast. Yeah. What is What are some things that people can do to begin to break the cycle? Does your to-do list have you overwhelmed? When you join my digital productivity coaching program, you'll learn how to get and stay focused, become untangled from the chaos of your to-do list, experience less overwhelm, and have time to do what you really want to do. Sign up today by clicking the coaching tab at mrproductivity.com. Absolutely. Well, it's also, you know, at the basis of any self-sabotaging patterns that people have. And we all have done that in our lives to one degree or another. And of course, we see some of these public figures, you know, at, at the height of their career, publicly, politically, and they do things that you just can't believe they did that and just completely torch themselves, right? And obviously, there's an underlying unconscious patterning and some kind of self-sabotage program going on there. So what do we do about that? The answer really to all human suffering is love and compassion. 
we need to find ways to cultivate our own self-healing. And, you know, we can't go back to being a child. We can't go back into the womb, but we can complete the job that our parents began and we can fill in the gaps by cultivating self-compassion and self-love. You know, love is the answer to violence. Love is the answer to hate. Love is the answer to suffering. As human beings, we need love. We need nurturing. We need safety. We need, you know, and ideally we get a lot of that when we're little kids and we grow up in a relatively safe, loving environment. But for most of us, it was a mixed bag and none of us come through childhood unscathed. So we all have gaps in that. We have, you know, the traumas of aversive childhood experiences and and all that stuff's there in our neurobiology, and it can really get in our own way. Uh, and sometimes we're well aware of it, and sometimes we're not so aware of it. But the answer is really the healing work. Now, some people do that through various kinds of therapy, which can be very helpful. But you can also do a lot of self-healing work with various uh, forms of meditation, uh, self-compassion meditation, and so forth. But but that's really the answer. It's we We need that healing. We need to build up a strong sense of our own innate goodness. And, and build a kind of unconditional confidence that's grounded in the experiencing the depth of our being where we know we're not broken, we know we don't need fixing, we know we're whole, we know we're innately good. And a lot of the world's great meditative and contemplative traditions give us practices that allow us to drop into that depth of our being where despite all the stuff on the surface, we can recognize that place where I know I'm okay. And I know all the things I've been hearing that I'm not enough my whole life are lies. They're not true. That actually I'm completely good, whole, innately wise, intelligent, good, just the way I am. And yeah, I, I we all to, have I our surface stuff right, to deal with. Yeah, I want to yeah, stop right ahead. there. I have a couple of questions about uh, mindfulness and meditation because for the for the longest time, I'm like most people I've encountered, they didn't get it. What's the point of mindfulness? What's the point of meditation? And I started exploring it. I started reading books. I started, you know, researching it. And the, one of the books that really spoke to me was Jay Shetty's Think Like a Monk, because I always thought that meditation can only be done in the lotus position as a monk saying, um, and he goes, no, if you're in the shower and you're not thinking about anything, you're just alone in your thoughts, that could be a form of meditation. If you go for a walk or a run or a bike ride, and you're not listening to an audiobook or a podcast or music, you're listening to nature and you're fully present, that could be a form of meditation. If you're out in your backyard and you're just like getting some sun and your dog's there and you're just being quiet. And at that point, I'm like, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I get how powerful it is. And I've never heard anything from anybody, any resource that says meditation is bad, mindfulness is bad. I, I, that research is not there. So talk to us about the, the power and quite frankly, the simplicity to get started with mindfulness. Yeah, absolutely. And you said the key word, being fully present, right? Being fully present. So working with presence. Mindfulness is about being present, living in the here and now. And we have to train ourselves to do that because we have a lot of momentum and habits of being distracted, right? Our mind wanders and bounces all over the place all the time. We often hear from people when they start trying to practice mindfulness, I just can't do it. My mind's racing. My mind's too busy. I can't do it. I train a lot of public safety professionals. I, I hear that a lot. So it's just a matter of having good technique. But first of all, what is mindfulness practice really all about? Well, it's about training the mind and training the mind to be awake, to be present, to actually live our lives fully in the present moment instead of living our lives completely distracted. Mm. You know, research says that most of us 
spend 50% of our waking hours distracted, thinking about something other than what's going on. Mm-hmm. Before I started practicing mindfulness, I think it was more like 80% for me. But so we're, we're, we're asleep one third of our life, and then we're sleepwalking another third, and we get to, you know, let's say I, I live to be 90. I really only am present for 30 years of that. You know, that's kind of disturbing wow. to me, right? Yeah, it is. You know? Yeah, so, so, you know, I think it's mindfulness is about waking up and being able to actually experience our life, you know, the, the good, bad, and the ugly of it, but be present for it and really experience it and all its, uh, its um, amazing profundity. So that's part of it. It's also about healing. It's really about healing. And most mindfulness techniques encourage us to develop a non-judgmental space of awareness in which we can just let our experience unfold as it is. So if we're doing a formal practice where we're sitting and practice mindfulness of body, mindfulness of breathing, then we make a gentle effort to stay present by anchoring ourselves in the felt experience of the body and breath. But other than that, we just let our experience be. We let thoughts come and go. We let emotions come and go. We let memory surface. And over time, as we're successful in creating this kind of open, non-judgmental space of awareness, then things just surface. And as long as we don't mess with them and try to repress them or get caught up in them, they just surface and empty, surface and empty. And all that accumulated stuff starts to release from our neurobiology and our memory and so forth. And we find ourselves feeling lighter and less complicated with all this, you know, kind of baggage of all the traumas we've experienced our whole life and all the adaptations we've created around that. So I'd say meditation is for waking up, which allows us to enhance the quality of our life and our performance in life in any human activity. It's going to enhance our performance. It's going to improve the quality of our relationships. And it's and it's about healing. So it's it's this idea of waking up being present and all the benefits of that. And then it's about healing all the accumulated traumas and, and complications from the past. So I've recently listened to an audio book. I think it was called Peak Performance or Peak Performers. I don't remember. And they were talking about mindfulness. And they said it is actually better to meditate once a, uh, for one minute every day than to do three minutes on Monday, skip Tuesday, Wednesday, do 20 minutes on Thursday, skip Friday, Saturday. Is it better to do it short consistently? Well, it's good anytime you do it. Okay. So I really want to give people permission to find their way because anytime you do it is good, right? And we all, you know, we're all challenged, right? It's no small thing being a human being. Mm-hmm. But yes, you're right. Consistency is very helpful. And it may be more helpful to do one, two, three, four, five minutes a day, if we can be consistent with that, to do it like once every couple of weeks for a half hour, right? But anytime we do it is good. And and it is about the consistency. And it's amazing that even a few minutes a day can have a result. You know, it's kind of amazing when you think about it that you could be, you know, relatively distracted, kind of not so mindful, you know, you know, 23 and a half hours out of the day, and they may maybe get in a half hour of, of mindfulness or less, and that that's going to have an impact. But it does. It does because it puts us in touch with the reality of perceiving the world as it is. And it also starts to connect us with the reality of our the depth of our being as it is. And all that is so much more powerful than the kind of distracted surface conceptual illusory kind of thing where we spend most of our time otherwise that it just breaks through that. So even a little bit of practice is very impactful. And we have the current neuroscience now demonstrating that even a little bit of practice begins to actually change the brain. We know now 
the phenomenon of neuroplasticity, you know, only a few decades ago, we thought the brain you have by the time you're adult is the brain you got. And if anything, it diminishes in its capacity over the lifespan. We now know that's not true. We've known that for some time. The brain is a learning machine. It's continually learning and adapting based on what we expose it to. And it can grow and thrive throughout the lifespan, even if we're lucky enough to become a centenarian and be in good health, right? It can still be growing and thriving if we take care of it. Everything that's good for the body is good for the brain, but then we also need to challenge the brain and train the brain. So mindfulness actually re-sculpts the neural networks in our brain in very positive ways and improves emotional balance, uh, improves cognitive control, uh, sets us up to have a more positive outlook on life, uh, allows us to be more resilient. Uh, there's all kinds of changes, and it's really well documented. And even just an eight-week program that people do where they've done MRI brain scans for someone who's never practiced mindfulness at the beginning. Then they do an eight-week program where they're like going to one class a week. They commit to practicing mindfulness a half-hour day, and they maybe do one day-long kind of day of mindfulness during that eight-week period. So it's not like they go off to a cave and become a monk. It's just it's something people do while they, while they have jobs, right, over an eight-week period. At the end, they do another brain scan, and they see literally physical measurable changes in the neuronal structures that neural wow. pathways that support positive outlook, better emotional control, better cognitive control, actually become more robust, increase gray matter. The, the neuronal thickness increases. They can measure this. So it's very impactful, and uh, it doesn't cost anything. It's easy to learn. It can be a struggle to begin with because, you know, we start off with that noisy mind, right? So there's there's uh, an approach I teach to mindfulness called neurosomatic mindfulness, which is designed to help people, brand new beginners, get started and have much more success with the practice right off the bat. So they're much more likely to continue. But it will also help intermediate practitioners or even advanced practitioners go to the next level. And it's really about emphasizing physical embodiment, like really getting into feeling the body and breath at the deepest possible level and breaking through our kind of conceptual body where we're thinking about the body or we have images of the body to get into the actual felt experience of the body, both externally on the surface of the skin, but also into the interior space of the body, activating our capacity for internal perception, which is known as interoception, because the body is sensory all the way down to the bones and including the bones. We're a living organism and there's a somatic universe there. The, the universe of the body is this limitless universe that we can drop into. And the more we get in touch with that, and the more we activate and enhance our interoceptive awareness, it heals trauma, increases resilience, uh, and, and really sets us up for being able to experience profound states of awareness externally in the world, but also dropping into that depth of our being where we realize the truth of our own innate goodness. Despite all the lies we've heard our whole life, mm. we realize beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm not broken, I don't need fixing, I'm innately good, innately whole. And that changes everything in our life. Hey, you, listening to the Mark Stuchowski podcast, thank you so much for doing so. I really appreciate it. But are you a Mark Stuchowski insider yet? This is my free email newsletter, and you can sign up right now by going to mrproductivity.com, M-I-S-T-E-R, mrproductivity.com. Yeah, I love that. And I remember, I, I don't remember what app I used, Calm or Headspace or whatever it was. And I was having trouble going to sleep one night and they said, let's do a body scan. 
and mm-hmm. you probably know what body scan is. And Absolutely. I course, I had all these thoughts going, I was anxiety, I couldn't go to sleep. And I said, okay, I'm going to give this a whirl. And, you know, it started with the toes and I, I focused on the toes. I focused on my feet. And I don't think I made it up to my hips before I fell asleep because I was mm-hmm. giving my mind something else to focus on instead of the anxiety of not falling asleep. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I woke up the next day, I'm like, oh my goodness, it worked. <laughs> Yeah, the body scan is a great practice, and uh, it's great to do anytime, but it's particularly helpful when we're trying to go to sleep, absolutely. Because our brains, I, I don't know, I, I got to believe this is kind of common. When you are anxious about you know being able to fall asleep, well, the more you think about it, the more anxious you get, which means you're even more challenged to go to sleep, but it just becomes the snowball rolling down a hill. And that's why the bedtime meditation works, because you want to get your mind to Let's disconnect from the anxiety. Let's disconnect from the worries of the day. Let's just worry about focusing on the body scan or they have like Audible's got these stories you can read. And I think that's really effective because it gives your brain and correct me if I'm wrong. It gives your brain something to latch onto and, and let go of the anxiety. Is that how that works? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll share a little something with you, which I, I think is quite helpful. And there's a neural network in the brain called the default mode network. There's another neural network in the brain called the task positive network. And these play a a big role when it comes to practicing mindfulness. So the default mode network is the neural network that's very active when we do not direct our attention, when we do not direct our attention. That's the noisy part of the brain. It loves to time travel into the past and worry and ruminate about the past. It time travels into the future and worries about the future, fantasizes about the future. It has a running commentary going on about the present thinking about me, what do other people think about me, forming all my opinions. It's that noisy radio station that's been going on up there in the brain forever, right? That's the default mode network. Now, when we direct our attention, we activate something called the task positive network, sometimes called the executive network. And that has a quality of stabilizing our attention. In fact, anytime you talk about brain science, there's a a danger of oversimplifying things. and, And so I'm going to do that just a little bit here, but but still, there's a lot of validity to what I'm saying. So these two neural networks, the task positive network and the default mode network, are to a degree mutually inhibitory. So when we focus on something and bring online the task positive network, the default mode network starts to go offline. Now, we all know this, like if anybody remembers, like, you know, trying to thread a needle or bait a fish hook, or you're trying to hit a tennis serve, and that moment of focus and concentration, the mind quiets down, Mm -hmm. right? So in our mindfulness practice, that's why it's really helpful to really emphasize the physicality of the body, like literally feeling tactile physical sensation in the body and getting into feeling the body as deeply as we can because it develops an anchor and it synchronizes body and mind, like body and mind in the same place at the same time doing the same thing with awareness, right? So it develops that anchor. It's kind of like some of us might have had one of those blow up toys, clowns, something when we're kids. It has a a lead weight in the bottom Mm -hmm. and you push it over, it comes right back up. Right. Right. So by developing this deeply felt physical presence of the body, that's like putting lead down there. Right. It anchors us in a present. It makes it a little hard for the mind to wander, easier for it to come back. Right. And so if we develop that ability to really feel into the body all the way down to the bones, and we develop that over time, we're awakening that internal landscape of the body. Now, everybody is familiar with introception or introceptive awareness, even if they've never heard the term, because that's how we know when we're hungry, when we're thirsty, when we need to use the bathroom, when we experience muscle pain, indigestion, headache. That's all 
internal perception. The problem is absent discomfort, we usually ignore that whole internal landscape of the body. Wow. We're very visually and auditorially oriented. So we're up in the head, caught up in our thinking or distracted by the world, right? And we tend to ignore this whole internal landscape except when there's discomfort. But we can intentionally awaken that landscape and that grounds us so we become more embodied. And that does all kinds of amazing things. It awakens us to our emotional life, to our heart. It grounds us, connects us with the earth. You know, even in big social and cultural terms, you know, we have these amazing brains, right? Human brains. And now they're trying to duplicate that with artificial intelligence. They, they're still nowhere near the complexity of the human brain. But we have these amazing creative brains. But when the brain gets unhooked from the earth, the body, the heart, there's a lot of collateral damage. You know, we're doing a lot of things, a lot of amazing things, but they're having huge collateral damage on the environment and the planet. And, uh, you know, really putting human survival in question on this planet in the coming decades, right? So we need to reconnect these amazing creative brains with the heart and with the body and with the earth so that our amazing creative cognitive abilities can again be in service of what we feel to be connective and true and human and good and be reconnected with the earth, our first mother, the earth, our home. And, and our bodies are made of the earth. We are earthlings. The body is made of all the same stuff the earth is. And we are two-legged creatures. We can move around on the earth, but we very much are of the earth, right? And so by reconnecting with the body, we're reconnecting with the earth and reconnecting with our heart. So, you know, and it makes mindfulness practice a lot easier because the more we have this deeply felt physical presence of the body and the breath, the mind naturally starts to quiet down. It's easier to practice mindfulness. And we start getting those results you read about in the books that the great yogis, the great monks experience. Hmm. You can experience those much earlier on. And then you go, wow, this is amazing. I'm going to keep doing it. But if somebody's trying to practice and often when we start practicing mindfulness, we're doing it up here in the head only. And, you know, it's really hard. We have too many thoughts and it's boring and we can't concentrate. And so we don't keep going because it's too hard and it's not working. Right. Mm. So I think really good instruction um, is is critical. And that's why I've developed this neurosomatic mindfulness approach, which is setting up internal neurobiofeedback loops that I believe create the possibility of a profound level of self-regulation because we actually learn to organically feel inside how our actions of awareness and mindfulness and breath are impacted neural networks, and we begin to self-regulate in profound levels. You know, it's just like people may have done biofeedback, where you're hooked up to a heart monitor and you have an analog or digital representation of your heartbeat out there. And just by having that visual biofeedback loop, you can regulate your own heartbeat up and down. Or neurofeedback is done with a brainwave monitor. But again, you have that external reference point, right, of your brainwaves. Mm -hmm. But we can learn to do this internally. And I believe it, it may be the next frontier in human evolution, really, is developing this profound level of capacity for self-regulation, even beginning to really regulate our brain uh, in new ways. Wow. This has been extremely fascinating. And I will, before we get to the uh, the summits you want to talk to us about, I will tell you about six months ago, I think it was back in January 2021 or December 2020, I had a guest on the show that introduced me to the concept of grounding. And the reason why I bring that up is because you mentioned, you know, the earth and our bodies. And what they found out is once we started wearing rubber-soled shoes, we were no longer grounded. We, we ground our electricity. We ground our cable. But what I have done is I'm, I'm one of these people. I'm a doer. And so I started grounding and I run every day. And I can tell you 
when I run, if I go out and ground for 30, 45 minutes, an hour a day, I actually feel better because the the body's electrical system is connecting with the, the ground's electrical system. And I feel better. It lowers my inflammation. So I just want people to know that you're not going to get hurt from mindfulness or grounding. Go ahead and try it. And I, I need to get back on this. I've got the the Apple Watch, the, the mindfulness on. And it keeps reminding me all day long. And I'm like, I'll get to it later. And I got, I got to learn to stop. And, and, and say, okay, look it, I got a minute. I could take five minutes. I could do it now. And I'd probably be more productive, uh, later on the day. So tell us about these summits that are going on now and they're going to be coming in the future. Yeah. Well, uh, through my, uh, company, Heart Mind Institute, we put on a lot of, and, and also in collaboration with the nonprofit I direct that's involved in the prison work and the work with public safety and first responders. Um, we put on these online summits that are free. Uh, anybody who registers has 48 hours access to each day's videos. Sometimes they're five, six days. We have a 10 day summit coming up next January. And, uh, so they're free. And then people who want access to it on an ongoing basis can purchase the whole thing for a very small price. And that's what funds being able to produce these amazing summits. And we bring the, the most well-known mindfulness teachers, mindfulness-based clinicians, trauma experts in the world forward on these summits. And we have a summit. I, I understand this podcast is going live tomorrow. So we have a summit that's live right now called Summit Palooza. It's actually kind of a best of summer summit drawing 36 powerful presentations from three of this year's 2021 premier summits. So it's live right now running September 14th through the 19th. So actually you'll still be able to view the last part on the 20th. And uh, it's just summitpalooza.com and really an all-star lineup of the best known mindfulness teachers, mindfulness based clinicians and trauma experts. Uh, we have yeah, a summit. I just want to remind the listener that you're hearing this on September 18th. We just recorded this yesterday. Mm-hmm. And, and so it goes to the 19th. So don't procrastinate. I'm Mr. Productivity. Don't procrastinate. Go to summitpalooza.com and register. You may not be able to be able to see everything, but you know, don't procrastinate, go register for it and get some value right away. It's not going to cost you anything, but your time. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll still have like two days of viewing there with some amazing presentations. And, you know, if somebody does want to purchase the lifetime access package, it'll only be $197. And they not only get that summit, they get three other complete summits. They'll get like 150 hours of of transformational for under $200. So then we're doing this summit for first responders, our heroic first responders and their families who are always so challenged. But now with the pandemic and all the other stuff that's going on in our culture that we know about, extremely challenged. So we have a six-day summit coming up October 12th through the 17th, and that's at firstresponderresiliencesummit.org. I'm sorry, firstresponderresiliencesummit.org. So if anybody knows any first responders, please let them know about this, firstresponderresiliencesummit.org, six-day summit. And then we have an amazing summit in January of year called the best year of your life. And it's meant to replace the idea of new year's resolutions, which are a proven failure. They don't work. And there's a lot of reasons why they don't work because we kind of set ourselves up for self-shaming and then we run away from that as quickly as we can. Right. (laughs) But so the best year of your life is starts January 12th, 10 days. And we bring together real experts on motivation, on mindset, on habit change, and then experts on, up-leveling, whatever areas of our life are important to us, our personal, physical health and well-being, our emotional health and well-being, the quality of our relationships, our spiritual life, our business and career success, uh, our financial health, 
our relationship with the earth, uh, you know, simpler living. It's a, it's an amazing 10-day summit where we're really providing evidence-based, very practical evidence-based strategies and tools for people to really make significant changes in their life and kick off the year in a really powerful way. So people can find that at bestyear.life, bestyear.life, L-I-F-E, bestyear.life. And you can go there now and you'll see last year's summit is still available, the, the package, but you'll at that same place, you'll find the 2022 summit when that becomes available. So that's uh, bestyear.life. I love that you said what you said about New Year's resolutions, because when people I'm, I'm a big goal setter and I said January 1st is just a date in the calendar. Uh, if you don't have any goals right now on September 18th, you can create a goal today. You don't have to wait till January 1st. Absolutely. And I've been trying to fight this. As it sounds like you have too. January 1st is just a date in the calendar. You can start anytime you want. And this notion, well, first of all, New Year's resolutions are not specific. They're like, eh, I want to lose weight. I want to, no, enough of the vagueness. You got to have goals. And so I'm so glad you addressed that. Well, Fleet, I yeah, want we, think- te- we, we, we teach people how to do that. I will say that, you know, you're right. We can start anytime. And there is something to the calendar. It's not completely arbitrary. But what we do throughout December, we help people bring that year to a close ah. and really acknowledge all their successes, acknowledge where we dropped some balls, but not in a self-shaming way. Just get really clear. Where am I? How'd my year go? Bring that to a close, do all the healing work. And then, okay, now January 1st, I'm ready to go. I'm going to create the life I want starting right now. I love it. I love it. Well, Fleet, I want to thank you for being on the show today. It was very eye-opening. It was very brain-opening. And I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me and wish you all the best. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time and attention for listening to this episode of the Mark Stucheski podcast. Hey, are you a Mark Stucheski insider yet? This is my free email newsletter where I will send you value multiple times a week. And I promise you, every time I send an email out to my insiders, it always has value. So if you want to sign up absolutely free, just head on over to mrproductivity.com, M-I-S-T-E-R, mrproductivity.com.